0: From Podimo, this is Cold Blood, Nordic True Crime. The Ring of Counterfeiters This time, Cold Blood, Nordic True Crime will tell the story of one of the most serious cases of counterfeit money production ever seen in Denmark. The counterfeit American currency was worth about 200 million kroner, roughly 24 million pounds. A small gang of three people with the help of a fourth partner working at a distance, managed to print a huge amount of dollars that looked so similar to the original notes that even American special agents were impressed by the quality. This case also involved international drug trafficking, a Danish sailing boat transporting millions, and a Swedish paper mill that delivered the paper to the gang, which was used to print counterfeit dollars to buy heroin in Thailand for importing back to Europe. The story starts on the Danish island of Bornholm. It's August 1978. Night is falling, and the police are conducting an operation they've been preparing for months. Police officers are hiding in bushes and among trees, listening out for the sound of a plane engine. Eventually, their patience is rewarded as the noise of a small single-engine Cessna can be heard getting closer. The plane lands a few kilometers beyond Eilinger, in the northern part of the island, The police are waiting. After landing, the plane's engine is turned off and the pilot is arrested. Police officers find what they're looking for on the plane. 55 kilograms of hashish. But there's a problem. The police have no idea who was supposed to pick it up. And they have no idea that it was sent by the most influential person in the local underworld. The Emperor. The nearest house is a few kilometers from the field and belongs to a seemingly successful architect and entrepreneur. He's well known in Copenhagen's nightlife scene. At first glance, he appears to be a young ambitious man with prospects and a promising career ahead of him. He is also the owner of a design boutique on the island. On the surface, everything looks alright. His name is Moens, and he's one of the three main characters in this case. In time, it will be revealed that he is a totally different person than he at first appears. It was moans who was supposed to pick up the delivery, but he probably learned of the police operation and for good reasons, keeps away from where the package was being delivered to. The police are unable to find out what was to be done with the hashish, who was supposed to get it, or where it came from. If they'd managed to locate the drug smugglers at this point, the rest of the story might never have unfolded. One year later, in 1979, in the southern part of the Funen Island, a group of drug squad agents are keeping watch of a villa in Svendborg. This house belongs to the man suspected of masterminding a large drug deal. His name is Tom, and he is the second most important figure in this story. He also runs a restaurant on Bornholm. The operation is led by an anti-drug unit that uncovered another large drug case at the beginning of the year. That case involved one and a half kilograms of heroin and morphine pills that were sold to a particular Dutchman, the aforementioned Emperor. The Emperor is not one of the main characters here, but he still plays an important role as the leader and mastermind of this operation. His friend, Klaas is also his right hand. Claes is not only a part of the emperor's criminal ring, but also the owner of a pub on Bornholm and has lived on the island for many years before moving to Copenhagen. He's the third main character of this story. So, our trio consists of Moens, a wealthy and stylish entrepreneur from Bornholm, and two drug dealers, Tom from Svendborg and Claes from Copenhagen. They all know each other back from their time spent on Bornholm, Together, they've devised a big plan they now want to execute. It's based on something the Emperor and Claes have been working on for a while. The Emperor comes from the drugs underground in Copenhagen, and he's not just anybody. He's one of the bosses and an ambitious guy with an idea. That idea is the basis for all the events described here, and Moens, Tom, and Claes are the ones who are supposed to put it into action. The emperor will provide enough money for the project to be carried out, working as the leader and mastermind behind the operation. He and Clace have known each other since the old days. In the 60s, Clace became bored of earning a living as a fisherman, like the rest of his family, and preferred to use his boat for transporting more valuable cargo. And so, the fisherman turned into a cigarette smuggler, Due to his former work at sea, Clace is experienced in sailing, which will become the main vehicle for carrying out the four men's plan. Clace's job as a smuggler takes him to Bornholm and Svenborg. During those runs, he meets Tom and Mohens, whom the Emperor knows from his group. The police know these four men and suspect they might have been the ones waiting in Erlinger for the plane and its delivery. The police officers start taking an interest in Clace and Tom But they have no idea what they're up to Both men were involved in a few burglaries But this time, there are suspicions they might be planning something bigger So the police decide to let them escape the burglary scene And keep them under surveillance At the time, the police have nothing against Moans And aren't interested in him On the 20th of June, 1980 Tom and Claes fly to Bangkok, with Claes covering the cost of the travel. The Danish police can't follow them, but suspect the men are planning to execute a large drug deal. The police officers don't know yet that counterfeit dollars worth around 200 million kroner are already somewhere in Denmark. About 24 million pounds in today's money. Claes returns to Denmark on the 3rd of July, and Tom arrives a few days later, on the 10th of July. After returning from the trip to Thailand, Tom makes some calls to different people in his network. But while he was away, the police have planted bugs in his house. They begin to listen in on his calls. One of the people Tom calls is from Copenhagen. The conversation is about selling 10,000 every week at the rate of 50. And the police think it must be connected to drug trafficking somehow. They have no idea that in reality... It's about counterfeit money. The police officers continue their surveillance. They find out that Tom and Clace are looking for a large and luxurious motor yacht. And even though both of them barely have any money in their bank accounts, Clace manages to obtain 140,000 kroner to offer advanced payment for a Nimrose 45 yacht, which costs about 800,000 kroner in total. The seller wants a guarantee that the remaining sum will be paid, but Claes doesn't have that much money, and the transaction is temporarily cancelled. Still, Claes is allowed to rent the yacht for a test cruise. But because the insurance is not valid abroad, he is restricted to Danish waters. Thanks to the bugs, the police know both men are planning a cruise to the Caribbean, Africa, and Thailand, most likely to buy or sell drugs or smuggled goods. Meanwhile, the police intercept information that Tom sent a sample of goods to a friend in Saudi Arabia, but they don't know the contents of that sample. When the two men talk, the friend from Saudi Arabia denies he knows anything about the sample. He's afraid of going to jail and warns Tom to stay away from it all. On the 29th of August, the yacht they're renting, called the Romeo, is launched and Khalees and Tom sail to Bornholm. The next day, They reach the port of Vang After spending a few days On the rocky island They sail back to Svendborg And moor the yacht Near Tom's house Tom's friend Whom he met in Bornholm Is also on board After a few days The friend goes back to Bornholm And when he talks to Tom Over the phone after his return The police learn That Tom picked up a parcel On the 10th of September Tom's friend Doesn't know yet That the drug squad unit Opened the package earlier its contents surprised everyone. The so-called goods sample is a freshly washed, used pair of jeans. Next to it, there's a note saying, I hope you'll be happy. The police check the jeans and find a folded $100 banknote in the back pocket. Forensic examination reveals that it's a fake. It now becomes clear what the 10000 a week at the rate of 50 message meant. The counterfeit money is to be sold for half of its nominal value. And because the counterfeiters want to deliver $10,000 weekly, they need to have more money within reach. The police must now pack the sample in such a way that the recipients won't notice that the package has been opened. The package then needs to complete its journey to the recipient. But there's a problem. The police are obliged to confiscate counterfeit money that they find the investigating team have to present the case to the deputy chief of police. The deputy chief gives the secret investigation the green light to go against the normal protocols around counterfeit money, and the package is delivered to the recipient on Bornholm, Tom's friend. Six days later, Tom and Claes leave Svendborg in the yacht, Romeo, which is constantly watched by the police and other services backing up the police officers. German police officers later inform them that the Romeo sailed through the Kiel Canal towards the UK. Tom and Claes have broken their promise to the boat's owner, the promise to only sail in Danish waters. The police officers decide to let the two men go, assuming there is more counterfeit money hidden in a place unknown. If the police were to arrest the two men, they'd risk the rest of the money never being found. Officers are certain that the crews must have something to do with the counterfeit money, probably connected to selling it. But for now, the only evidence they have against Tom and Clace is a single fake $100 banknote. Tom and Clace are sitting on the deck, enjoying the cool sea breeze. They're on their way to the Canary Islands. So far, events have been unfolding quietly. But that piece is disturbed when the boat's owner reports it as stolen to the insurance company. He looks like he allowed almost a million kroners worth of vessel to sail away, and despite the agreement, his boat was taken out of Denmark. After getting the report of the stolen yacht, another police force based in Horsholm, with the help of Interpol, started chasing the two men and the yacht. The original police unit investigating the fake money don't try to stop their colleagues as they don't want Tom and Claes to suspect that the counterfeit money has already been discovered. They would also be surprised if the boat theft had been reported and the case was ignored, so it makes sense to let the Horsholm police go on the chase. After spending a month at sea, the two men reach the Los Cristianos port in Tenerife. The local police are waiting for them, while the Danish police are following the operation from afar. Only Claes is arrested since he was the one officially registered as the yacht's captain. Tom is not apprehended. He's lost and doesn't know what to do next. The police follow him after dark as it seems the man is guilty of something. He steals a dinghy from the nearby port and sails towards the Romeo, probably to get the counterfeit money, which, according to the police, is on the yacht. Tom manages to get into the cabin, but when he gets back out onto the deck, he is noticed by a guard. He ends up in jail, but is released the next day. Claiming he has to grab a few personal belongings from the yacht, he manages to take 80,000 kroner from a hiding place under the bunks and smuggle the money out of the boat unnoticed. But apparently, that's not enough. Even though both he and Clace are still under the surveillance of Spanish law enforcement, neither of them hides that they'd like to have access to the boat. After many days of negotiating with the Spanish police, Tom gives up and returns to Svenborg, leaving Claes in the Spanish jail. Meanwhile, the owner of the Romeo arrives in Tenerife. He helps the police sail the yacht to Santa Cruz, on the north side of the island. The policemen want to take the Romeo apart, hoping to find the bundles of fake banknotes that they think are on board. The yacht's owner is convinced the boat was used for smuggling and remains present during the search They get to work and take off the casing and check all the lockers and shelves as well as the engine chamber but find nothing After a few days of unsuccessful searching the Danish police officers have to leave Tenerife Their new plan is to follow the boat if the two men are allowed to sail it again but the yacht owner is certain something must be hidden on it The boat is a mess anyway so he continues searching but to no avail A few days later, on the 9th of November, the owner starts repairing one of the lamps on the deck. While fixing it, he finds a wire behind the casing of a permanently fixed bar cabinet. When the man pulls it, there's a hollow clunk and he finds a hidden package. He eagerly dismantles the cabinet, which takes him four hours. In an empty niche, he finds several plastic bags filled with fake dollars. He also finds a loaded revolver. The boat owner immediately reports his findings to the police, and the officers seize the boat and count the money. The bag contains 702,400 counterfeit American dollars, almost 4 million kroner. Today, that would be worth around 1.4 million pounds. After further examination, the police discover that the banknotes were printed using offset printing on cotton paper, Made from 100% cotton, the same material used for printing authentic banknotes. The case slowly gains momentum and Tom is detained in Denmark. Both he and Claes, who is still in jail in Tenerife, deny they know anything about the counterfeit money. But Tom's wife shares an important clue. She says there are thousands of fake banknotes in their house and that Tom told her it's $36 million. By 2020, that would be worth almost £60 million. The police are stunned by the sheer amount of counterfeit money. There has been no case of counterfeiting money on that scale in Denmark before. Tom's wife is not accused, even though she knew about the false money. She's pregnant and due any day, so arresting her would be problematic in the eyes of the law anyway. The police interrogate Claes and Tom. The latter quickly pleads guilty and confirms that he was part of the operation. He claims that it was Clace who obtained the counterfeit money and that the trip to Thailand was just a holiday. The police have his partial plea of guilty, but they still don't have most of the $36 million or any exact clues about the location of the hideout. Nor do they know where the banknotes were printed. They need clues that could show them the bigger picture. To learn more, the police officers check all the past surveillance operations they had carried out concerning the two men. One observation from the 18th of June shows some promise. On that day, Claes drives his car towards a building in the Copenhagen suburbs before an unknown man leaves the villa and drives away in Claes's car. The police surveillance team routinely films the man, and officers decide to question the neighbors and other people in the area. They learn that until July 1980, there was a large offset printer in the house and that the villa is rented by a company. The man they filmed in Clay's car sits on the board of directors of that firm. His name is Mohans, the entrepreneur and architect we heard about at the beginning of the story. His house was located near the field where the small plane transporting hashish landed. When Claes and Tom sailed away, Mowens was still doing his part of the job at the villa in the suburbs of Copenhagen. After examining the case in more detail, it turns out that in 1980, the company received a 20,000 kroner VAT rebate after purchasing equipment and offset printing accessories from a Danish firm from Ballerup. The printing press and other accessories were bought in March of that year, but in June 1980, the equipment is bought back by the company from Ballarup. When the company gets the printing press back, there is almost no sign of use. What puzzled the original owner even more was that Moens sold it back to them at a really low price. The police got lucky. The offset press is still in the firm in Ballarup and hasn't been touched since they bought it back. And when Moens purchased it, it was new. Because of that, The police know it's not been used by anyone else for any other purpose. Forensic technicians examine the press closely, since any traces of use could have only come from Moen's company. Eventually, the experts find traces of green and black printing ink, the same colors that can be seen on American banknotes. The paper leftovers in the machine are also cotton paper, similar to the material used for making the fake dollars. The police continue investigating the printing press, looking for evidence that would confirm it was used for printing counterfeit money. After a long and intensive search, the police officers discover a piece of paper under one of the coil springs. Its surface area is one square centimeter, and there's a motif printed on it. It's from a one-sided print of a counterfeit banknote. Moens is arrested and confronted with the results of the police investigation, He denies everything. His house is searched, but it yields no clues as to the whereabouts of the hidden money. But the police do find half of a $1 banknote. This banknote turns into an interesting clue that will lead the investigators out of the country to Thailand. Moens explains that he bought the Offset Press because he wanted to start working in the printing industry after his construction company on Bornholm went bankrupt but the police do not believe him and keep accusing him of taking part in forgery claiming that they have tangible evidence to prove it they tell him that they're surprised how he managed to legally obtain 105,000 kroner for the advanced payment for the offset press after his company had gone bankrupt finally Moens agrees to share this unbelievable story telling them how the whole operation started and how everything is connected he and Clace have known each other for a few years. Moens doesn't tolerate cannabis or any other drug dealing, as he prefers normal business. After the bankruptcy of his company, Moens wants to start printing pornography, and Clace wants to join him. For Clace is a piece of cake, as back on Bornholm, he was the co-editor of a small newspaper and already knows about offset printing and picture stories. Claes tells Moens about the Emperor's idea concerning big scale counterfeit money production. Moens' task is to get enough paper. He learns that there's a paper factory in Tumba, Sweden, and that they make the paper used, among other things, for Swedish banknotes. And technically, Swedish banknotes of the time have a lot in common with American banknotes. Claes supplies him with money for the purchase. Then Moens goes to Stockholm, where he gets in contact with the embassy of the Kingdom of the Netherlands. He acts according to the plan. Moens borrows a phone book from the embassy to find the number of a paper mill from Amsterdam, Van Heverkampf. Then he goes to Tumba. At the factory in Tumba, he pretends to be a representative of a company from Amsterdam and asks, in English, for permission to look around the firm. He says he is visiting because his company, Van Haverkampf, is considering doing business with the Swedes. But the Swedes remain skeptical and suspect something is off. They don't let Moens go inside the room where the banknote paper is made. Just in case, buying paper directly from the factory would not be possible, Moens has another plan. He'd previously learned that the goods from the factory in Tumba are sold by a wholesale company named Klippan. Again, he plays the role of the Van Haverkamp representative and buys 5,000 A2 paper sheets. Type, Tumba 1977, Swedish Archive 80, from the Klippan Company. The paper is transported to the villa in Denmark, but Claes gets mad when he sees a problem. The sheets have a watermark that is not present on American banknotes. It requires a lot of time and effort, but they solve the problem by cutting off the watermarked bits of paper. In the end, all the effort is worth it. Moens confesses that he and Claes had different opinions on the banknotes Claes started manufacturing in the meantime. He was not happy with the first banknotes printed by Claes and wanted to find better material for the next ones. This is when Moens begins to get nervous. During a trip to Bornholm, he learns how high the fine for counterfeiting money is, and it worries him. In a book he borrowed from a library, he reads that counterfeiting money is punishable by up to 12 years in prison. He thinks about all the money he's made so far, then decides to burn it. In his opinion, many of those banknotes aren't of sufficient quality anyway, so there's no reason to keep them any longer, and it's also better to get rid of everything that might serve as evidence. Criminology experts have a different opinion and don't agree with Moen's critical remarks about the banknotes. They are actually of much better quality than most counterfeit banknotes usually are. Meanwhile, Moen's is still stressed by thinking about the possible prison sentence and wondering how much evidence can be connected to this case. He tries to contact Claes in Copenhagen, but to no avail. So he travels to the capital by train and goes straight to the villa planning to pack everything that has anything to do with his company. He also wants to give the printing press back. As he's cleaning the villa, he discovers that something is hidden underneath the floorboards. Hundred-dollar banknotes, grouped in bundles, and spread over half a cubic meter. Moens returns the printing press, takes the money, and goes back to Bornholm. A few days later, when Klaas returns from a trip to Thailand he's shocked to discover that the villa has been emptied and all the money is gone. He immediately goes to Bornholm. Moens tells him the banknotes are in good hands and shows him a few sealed boxes the money is supposedly in. But he doesn't tell Claes that he already destroyed half of the banknotes in a heating boiler a few days ago. They agree that Moens should bury the money in the forest on the island in a place they both know. After that... They meet again only when Clace and Tom sail the Romeo to Vang port. Thanks to Moen's testimony, the police can almost see the full picture now. Almost. They need some more information before they can conclude the investigation. Where is the rest of the money? What were Clace and Tom really doing in Thailand? Are Clace, Tom and Moen's the only people involved in this undertaking? Or is there a mastermind behind it all? Moens tells the police he knows where $15 million is buried, but he wants a chance for Clays to be transferred from the Spanish jail to Denmark so that Clays could lead the police to the place the money is buried on his own. Clays confesses some things to the Spanish police, but claims that it was his boss, the emperor, who was the mastermind of the whole operation, who financed it at the beginning, and who came up with the idea in the first place. Then, he says... He did not know the money was to be buried. Claes is not stupid. As long as he is in Spain, he sees a chance for himself by hiding some of the truth from the police. So he tells the police only part of the story, hoping that the Danish authorities will press to have him handed over. But Claes is unaware that his boss, the emperor, was arrested in Denmark for another crime involving drugs, and that soon after, the emperor hanged himself in his prison cell. After questioning Clace, the Spanish police inform him that the Emperor committed suicide. Clays realizes that now the Emperor is out of the picture, he'll be considered the leader of the operation. Meanwhile, back in Denmark, Moens corrects his statement and claims the $15 million were not buried. His new testimony suggests that it's only half of the sum, and that he only said 15 million earlier to get the police's interest. He says that it's really a little less than $7 million American dollars. The money was buried in two different places, and while he doesn't remember where exactly, he will gladly try to find it. Using a map, the police identify two locations where the money was buried. After an intensive search on the Rocky Island, they find 25,000 counterfeit American banknotes buried with some destroyed printing plates. The criminal division is impressed by the quality of the banknotes. They were printed in the offset technique, using cotton paper, almost the same method as the one used by the American Federal Reserve. In such cases, when the crime is counterfeiting American dollars, the United States Secret Service always gets involved in the investigation. The American experts think many of the banknotes could easily be passed off as authentic, Even the small mistakes could only be recognised because the investigators knew the banknotes were fake. A Danish clerk, largely involved in the case, wants to check if that's true and tries to exchange some of the counterfeit dollars in the local bank. He manages to do so without any trouble. In October, the Spanish court finds Clace guilty of counterfeiting money. He is sentenced to three years in prison and given a fine of four million kroner. The court doesn't think there's any evidence to suggest that Claes was going to sell that money in Spain, so the sentence is relatively mild. But the Spanish judiciary have yet to finish their proceedings. The Supreme Court of Spain examines the case again, and this time the facts are interpreted a little differently. In the end, Claes is sentenced to 12 years in prison. But the case is still not over. The American Secret Service is watching the investigation and its results very closely. The Americans, together with their colleagues from the Danish police, want to determine what Claes and Tom really did in Thailand. They eventually learned that both Danes were in close contact with an English-speaking man living in Thailand, who they'd met several times. In May 1981, the Thai authorities arrest Mike Maloney, a Canadian who's one of the few Westerners with direct connections to the opium farmers in the Golden Triangle area at that time. He became involved in it all thanks to the family of his wife, a local woman. They were the people Clace and Tom contacted. Maloney is aware that he can be severely punished for his role in drug-related crimes, He willingly talks to the Secret Service and agrees to tell them everything he knows about Clace and Tom. While in the American consulate, he explains that he knows the two Danes and that they are involved in the counterfeit dollars case, confirming they are the ones responsible for printing the banknotes. Of course, the Danish police also want to talk to Maloney. The problem is that the Secret Service has the right to question him first because despite the fact that he is Canadian, he also has American citizenship. But the Secret Service division that has jurisdiction over cases in Thailand is located in Hawaii, making it difficult to travel to Thailand to question the suspects. This leads to the American agents making an agreement with the Danish police. They send their representatives from Paris to Thailand to help the Danes. In December 1981, the investigators go to Thailand and meet their Secret Service colleagues before the interrogation. When Maloney is questioned, he says that he received 11,000 fake dollars from Tom, who asked him to sell them. Tom also told him he would be interested in buying heroin in exchange for the counterfeit dollars if Maloney was able to arrange it. They agreed to a price of 1 million counterfeit dollars for 1 kilogram of heroin. Tom explains to Maloney that he has access to unlimited funds. Maloney's job is to make contact with drug producers in the Golden Triangle. For future verification, they tear one of the banknotes in half, and each of them keeps one part of it. But Maloney is unlucky when it comes to money. When he attempts to exchange 200 banknotes, he is apprehended. He was trying to sell them to two policemen, he tries to convince the policeman to let him go and bribe them with the rest of the counterfeit money, gold, jewellery, and 1,000 bat. He tells Tom, who is suddenly in a hurry to get back to Denmark. They decide to keep in contact about the heroin. Later, Maloney sends a letter to Tom, asking him for test banknotes worth $1,000 since he was able to reach the heroin producers. But the Danes are quiet. A while after that, Maloney is caught with 400 grams of heroin and is arrested. He is sentenced to 33 years and 6 months in prison. That sentence is later shortened by 2 months. Meanwhile, the Thai police find the other half of the banknote. Maloney's wife confirms the testimony he gave to the Danish police and the Secret Service. The first sentences in Denmark are milder than Clay’s 12 years of imprisonment in Spain or Maloney's 33 years imprisonment in Thailand. Moens is sentenced to five years in prison, and Tom gets seven years. During the investigation, the accused mentioned many times that they printed 36 million counterfeit American banknotes. Allegedly, the banknotes were of such quality that even the Secret Service agents claimed they could be mistaken for the real ones. Only part of the money was ever recovered, so it's easy to wonder if the counterfeit money, worth a small fortune, is still hidden underground somewhere on the Danish island of Bornholm. Who knows? From Podimo, this is Cold Blood, Nordic True Crime. Listen to a new episode every week, wherever you get your podcasts. For early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts.